Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Tuesday is Equal Pay Day, the annual evaluation of women's salaries compared to men. You don't have to be an economist to know it's not a question of who made more, but instead how large is the difference in pay. The discussion about the gender pay gap is front and center as the nation works to build and maintain a strong economy. So what is the overall economic impact of this ongoing inequity? And are there ways for individuals, companies, and government to work toward equality for women? Later in the show, a newlywed couple, an argument, a tragic misidentification, and a once-happy future is upended. That's the beginning of the novel, An American Marriage, but it's what happens next that has captivated millions of readers. How does a woman support this man who is in such a terrible situation by no fault of his own? But what about her dreams? Can you do both? Tayari Jones's new book takes an intimate look at marriage through the poignant and painful journey of main characters Roy and Celestial. An American Marriage is Jones's latest novel and our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me in the studio, Megan Costello, Executive Director of the Mayor's Office of Women's Advancement here in Boston. Welcome, Megan. Hello, great to be here. I'm glad to have you. And Rosanna Hertz, class of 1919, reunion professor of sociology and women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. Hello, Professor Hertz. Hi, and thank you for inviting me today. Well, it's going to be a good conversation. And joining me from the studios of Vermont Public Radio, Ricky Gard Diamond, author of Screwnomics, How Our Economy Works Against Women and Real Ways to Make Lasting Change. Hello, Ricky. Hello. I'm so glad to be able to join you. This is fantastic. Well, Ricky, I have to say your book came in and it inspired our thinking in having another conversation because we've had several about pay equity or the lack thereof. So first, let me explain that to our listeners that Equal Pay Day was originated by the National Committee on Pay Equity in 1996. And what the organization was trying to do was have a way of demonstrating how long it takes women to work to equal what a man would earn. So they chose April because the census data with wage information comes out in August and September, and it takes that long, the extra months, for women to catch up from year to year. And they chose Tuesday to demonstrate that uh, you have to work into the week to be equal to what a man would earn for the same period in the week, beginning on Monday. Anyway, so that's the history. So, Ricky, let me start with you because your book came in, as I said, and we thought, wow, screwnomics, that's kind of saying it all in a, in a different way. Um, let's just get your take on Equal Pay Day today in 2018. And from what your book is saying is we're sort of right where we have been for a long time. Yes, and I was actually kind of shocked when I saw what Megan's counsel had discovered in the latest report there in Boston I think the the interesting thing about the figure that puts us working until April, that extra length of time that women have to work, 
is even a longer period of time when you begin to look at other factors like, is the woman African-American? Is she a Latina? Is she a Native American? You know, she could be working until the summer to uh, be equal to the average of what the median of what men are working. But another factor in this relationship between the two numbers that I think often gets overlooked is that at the same time that women's median income has been going up, she has been going to college in greater numbers. She's been taking out college loans that are going to take her longer to pay off because she's making less money. And at the same time, that other number that represents what men are doing is actually going down a little bit, especially for working-class men who are without a college degree. Mm. So the sense that, we're okay, we're getting more equal than we used to be doesn't match up with how we feel about our lives for good reason. We're still paddling like crazy to try to keep our nose above water. And we now have two earners supporting a household being the new standard that, you know, used to be if you were middle class, you might have somebody in the at home paying attention to that important work at home. But now it's kind of standard. We're just doing more and more on less time all the time. And coming out with uh, not a good result. So over to you, Professor Hertz, uh, Rosanna Hertz from Wellesley College, because you say there really has never been pay equity, period. So, you know, we can note it now in sort of modern times, but they're really to think about that there was at some point where there was is just wrong. So we've been playing catch up from the beginning. That's true. Um, We've just never had pay equity. Women have always made less than men overall, even if they're in the same positions. And what's kind of interesting about this, in the U.S., the Obama administration actually came up with an initiative to close the pay gap, and this would have required companies to report how much they paid workers on the basis of both gender and race. And unfortunately, the Trump administration decided to have pushback, of course, with this, their reporting now posed a burden on employers. So unfortunately, this is not happening, but it is happening in other countries. You know, the idea of making pay known and being very transparent about it is now required in uh, many Nordic countries. And Britain is thinking about a new law. And I think the laws or the regulations are going to be about companies that have 250 employers or more have to report this and be very transparent about it. So you can imagine if you know the guy next door to you is making more money than you, you know, how do you feel about this? And it can be now up for discussion. But Massachusetts passed a law, Megan, which is going to address transparency. Now, you know, some people said it wasn't as great as it could have been, but that's a big whack toward transparency. Can you talk about that? Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I think if we've learned anything over the years, we know that the wage gap is very complex. And so, you know, here in Boston, we've decided to take a multi-pronged approach to address this complex problem. We have the legislation, which my colleagues at the state, Jill Ashton especially, led a coalition to lobby and pass that legislation that goes into effect this July. It calls for more pay transparency. It provides some ranges of salaries. Um, It really is about putting some protections in place for women, but also giving employers resources to understand what they can and should be doing. 
But we also know that we can't just talk about new laws. We have to talk about cultural change. Mm. And that is really where we need both employers and individual women, really everybody, right, to recognize the role that they can and should play in closing the gender wage gap. So we as government, we can create new laws, but we can also use the bully pulpit of the mayor's office uh, or whatever office you hold. And that's what Mayor Walsh has decided to do. So we have 227 employers that we're working with in a voluntary way, and it's just different from what we're seeing around the rest of the world, in a voluntary way are saying, we all know that we have this problem. We're choosing to lead here, and we're choosing to do something about it. And so these employers are doing a couple things. They're reporting wage data anonymously to us so that we can get an aggregate sense of what is really the wage gap here in Boston, both by gender and by race. And we're also engaging at a very senior level, because this has to come from the top down, of companies saying to each other, what are you doing in this space? It's one thing to have a policy in your handbook. It's another thing to understand what the culture of your company is. And this for businesses is not just about the right thing to do. You know, we all want to think it's 2018. Maybe we should treat women equally because it's the right thing. But this is just as much about business's bottom line and the strength of our economy. We know that when you retain women, when you you know have a happier workforce, it creates a better product and it brings more money in. And so that's the work we're doing with employers. And then finally, we're partnering with the American Association of University Women. We started this here in Boston, but they've brought it to other cities too. And we've trained over 6,000 women here in Boston so far to give them really concrete tools to negotiate their salaries. Women are socialized differently than men. And so we have to acknowledge the behavioral aspects that are different and the unconscious bias that exists. And so it's this combination of government working together with employers and individual women that we're hoping will really have an impact here in Boston. Well, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. That's my guest, Megan Costello, Executive Director of the Mayor's Office of Women's Advancement here in Boston. Let me go back to the cultural piece because I was at the Simmons Leadership Conference and I heard Mayor Walsh uh, (laughs) last week call you out, give you a shout out. And But what he said in his remarks were, fostering a cultural shift is really where it's at. And he said, cultural change, this is his exact quote, is the tipping point. So I want you all to discuss what that cultural change means really on the ground. Because Ricky, in your book, you were sort of going right at that, that there are some specifics that women need to understand, but the overarching context is a cultural one. So I'll start with you to get your response, and then we'll move around the table. I think it's important for us to take a look at the fact that the economy and economics has been a pretty much man-to-man conversation for the last 2,500 years. My approach to economics has been one of language. The language is so important because not only does it describe what's going on and name what's going on, it also shapes the way we think about things. And so if you call something social insurance, social security, social security <laughs> insurance, <laughs> you feel differently about it than you do if it's called an entitlement, as has been happening lately entitlement, that's not American, so we need to change that. Language really is at the heart of the macroeconomic changes that have been happening that I think many women aren't even aware of. And so Screwnomics tries to make all of that more visible and provides a vocabulary so you can understand what's behind the news stories you're reading, because the macroeconomy, that global economy, remains 
the most male-dominated. The bigger the piles of money, the more men you're going to see at the top. And they're a particular man. I call him econo-man because he's really a social construction. But he's a man uh, that we expect to hear talking as the Mm. expert. He's a man of a particular class. He's a particular race. He's a particular education that is privileged, and he expects to rule. He expects to win. And he wages the economy as a war. So that is really the cultural landscape, if you've described it. That's my guest, Ricky Gard Diamond, author of Screwnomics, How Our Economy Works Against Women and Real Ways to Make Lasting Change. I want to pick up on something that uh, Ricky said, Rosanna Hertz, and that's about the visible and the invisible, because that's at the heart of your work, talking about women's, a lot of what women do and a lot of what society expects women to do is really invisible. Exactly. And thank you for bringing up that point. As I think Megan said, there's this unconscious bias that what women do or what women are better at doing is different than what men are better at doing. So there's this notion or this idea of invisible work. And when we think about all the things that women do in organizations, they tend to do things that don't get them recognized. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't do those things, but men tend not to volunteer for those things or not to get involved. So this is a particular problem, kind of like in the home, if there's a heterosexual couple and the laundry needs to be done, it's like it just shows up in your drawers. So the only way for anybody to realize (laughs) that the laundry hasn't been done is, or that it's actually been done at all is for you to do the laundry and then put it on the bed at night and say, gee, look what I did today. Otherwise, it's just taken for granted work. So that's what invisible work kind of means, what's taken for granted and who's doing it. The other thing that's going on there is that this also means that women will not be put on the same kinds of committees as men, so that men tend to be either selected for or opt into committees that have more power, more authority within organizations. So in some ways, women need to say, look, I want to serve on that committee. Maybe I'll do less of this invisible work, which women know they're really good at and are willing to pick up the slack for that organization. But they also need to be able to say or volunteer for these other committees that are much more visible to make themselves center stage instead of remaining on the margins. So that really is what we talk about when we say needing a cultural shift in our thinking about how women work and how women are seen in the workplace. Exactly. Mm If you're just joining me, I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And with me are Megan Costello, Executive Director of the Mayor's Office of Women's Advancement, Rosanna Hertz, you just heard her, Professor at Wellesley College, and Ricky Gard-Diamond, author of Screwnomics, How Our Economy Works Against Women and Real Ways to Make Lasting Change. We're discussing how the country can make changes to work, really, for equality for women in the economy. Now, Megan, you mentioned a number of factors that the Women's Workforce Council is going right at. One of them have to do with negotiations for salaries. And I want to put that in a context because I read this figure and I thought, oh, my God. And this is something that has come up in all of the research I've been doing, which I don't think people understand. Mm -hmm. It's not just about women's salaries increasing and the wage gap closing. It's about the wholesale impact on our economy. So here's a stat from IWP Research. If we paid women equally to men with the same education levels, work hours, age, and region, the poverty would be reduced by nearly half in every state, and over half a trillion dollars would be added to the U.S. economy. We are missing $513 billion because women are either 
not where they should be in the workplace or not in the workplace at all. Yeah. In the workforce, I mean. Pretty uh, depressing numbers. Yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, it's just mind boggling. But speak to people's lack of understanding that it's really not about women's salaries. It's just about the overarching impact on the economy. Yeah. I think this really gets to the why we need to address this. You know, I think for a long time, we've seen a variety of women's movements over the past several decades and even centuries. And, you know, a lot of people don't understand the why behind it. A lot of people think it's about social justice. It's just about equity. And it's really not that bad. But this is just as much about the economy as it is about equity. And so when we're talking to employers, they understand that. They understand that if they're not tapping 100% of the talent that exists in the city of Boston, which is majority women, which is majority women of color, which is majority women who have graduated and have a college degree. We're seeing higher number of women in the STEM fields. So this is about doing the right thing, but it's also about them getting the best talents to produce the best work, to get the best product, and to make the most money. And we really have a missed opportunity if we're not paying women equally, because it hurts not only them as individuals, but it hurts them as members of a family, members of a community. Here in Boston, we have a number of single-headed households. And of that, I think it's 54% of single-headed households here in Boston, and 70% of those households are led by women. And so we think about the impact of the gender wage gap is is sort of a social justice issue, and it, it certainly is, but it's also about the strength of our economy as a city. And I think this gets back to that culture question. Everybody has a role to play here, and I think especially men. This is something that Mayor Walsh and I talk a lot about. And in fact, on Thursday, we're doing a conversation with male CEOs to talk about how are they being very intentional in this space and acknowledging. So after equal pay day, you're having this conversation. conversation Because it really has to be about everybody looking internally and saying, what's my perspective? What's my privilege? How can I be intentional in this space? You know, one thing we talk a lot about is how are we amplifying each other? That invisible work that Rosanna was talking about, how are women asking for the credit that they Mm. deserve? But also, how are people giving credit that is deserved and seeking out those invisible things that women are doing in our workplaces and giving them credit and seeing those hard skills of, you know, knowing how to do Excel forms and all that, but also the soft skills that women bring to the table, the relationship building skills that women have. And that makes our workplaces stronger and better. Rosanna, you want to add something? Well, I just want to say, you know, it's really interesting you bring that up because when you fill out these forms of, you know, what did I do for the organization this year, it doesn't say who, how much time you spent mentoring people, how much time you spent dealing with your people under you in terms of getting them on board, dealing with issues in their lives, dealing with issues <laughs> in the workplace. I mean, the forms just say, here's the standard things that everyone does. And those are very, I hate to say this, male categories yeah. of what you contribute to a work place and the rest of it, there's no way to, in fact, indicate to your boss that you, in fact, did all this other stuff so that it goes by the wayside and it is invisible and doesn't count. That's one of the things, Rosanna, that we actually do in the salary workshops is we have women as part of the first step is to really write out their skill set. And a lot of women write out some very hard technical skills that they have and they bring to the workplace. But once we start having that soft skills negotiation or that soft skills conversation about what they're bringing to the workplace, it's incredible to see what they recognize as their value to the organization. And I would argue that I believe that a lot of that is recognized, but it's not acknowledged. Exactly. And, that and is that's very where big men difference. have a role to play. <laughs> 
Right. right. Exactly. And right. that's where employers have a role to play. Can I just put something in here yeah, about sure, the, the macroeconomy and the way language builds these assumptions and this man-to-man conversation, leaving out or misnaming what women know is really important. For instance, the invisible economy that Rosanna was talking about is called the informal economy by economists, which is a Mm -hmm. message that, oh, you really don't have to take this very seriously. You know, it kind of shapes how we think about it. And the gross domestic product only counts dollars that are exchanged. In other words, if you're cooking your own dinner for a big family, it's not worth anything to the GDP. If you take everybody out for dinner and you spend a great deal of money at the restaurants, that is helpful to the GDP. And there are many, many nations, uh, including our nearest neighbor, Canada, which are looking at not just that dollar amount and They are looking at the bigger picture of what is really important about all the many connections that we're all talking about here, Well, the the connections that build a community. That's my guest, Ricky Gard-Diamond, author of Screwnomics. That's uh, right where Rosanna lives. Um, We're just now starting to recognize these connections. And the thing about it is, is, you know, the question for me is, how do you apply this in some ways? Mm. What I would love to see women do is to actually say, as Megan's pointing out that, you know, I I do have these other things that I bring to the organization that I do all day long, that I don't just work nine hours a week in the classroom in my case, but in fact, it takes 25 hours to prepare for each hour that I put into the classroom and think about your work life very differently and what you're contributing to the workplace and that culture. So that once you make the invisible work and get the organization to recognize this official in quotes, you can maybe put a dollar amount on it. And in some ways, I think that women have always given to civil society, to the community and everything else. And we do that with a kind of generosity and a kind of expectation that's part of our lives. We don't think about it. It seems almost crass to make to put a dollar amount on it. But in some ways, that might, in fact, make what is invisible more visible and make people acknowledge it. And then the organization might turn around and say, look, let's split up all that work. Let's have no one get paid for it, but at least it won't be so unequal. And something that Ricky mentioned, which is happening, Rosanna, this is, again, your research as well, in Norway and other places, is there is recognition of other duties, certainly family duties, that women take on. And the U.S., again, is still the only developed country that will not offer paid leave for folks. And that has a huge impact. Rosanna, I know you want to add to that. Oh, well, you know, do you know about latte dads? So latte dads are these guys who, you know, are sleek dressers. They have close shaved beards. They hang out with, you know, born carriers with their kids. And they actually take parental leave because in those countries, in the Nordic countries, let's say take Sweden, for example, um, I think there's 480 days paid leave at 80%, which is really remarkable. Men have to take 90 of those days or the family loses it. So it's kind of an interesting thing so that men say, oh, I'm exhausted from doing all this childcare work. So A, they begin to experience what the work is like. But B, it means that the woman doesn't lose out for the mother penalty that our women would in the States, which is kind of interesting. So there's like two separate things going on. But it's like, how do you get men to understand the kind of privilege that they have by not doing any of this work. Mm-hmm. So I think this whole, whole idea is kind of like interesting. But it's also a formal acknowledgement that 
there right. is that work to be done and that everybody can be participatory in it. Yeah. One of the first things that Mayor Walsh did when we came into office was offer paid parental leave to our exempt employees. And it was fascinating. We had about equal number men and women participate. And our policy allowed for mm-hmm. flexibility over that you could take the time over the course of a whole year. And we saw women take it pretty immediately. And we saw men take it over the course of the year. And so they were participating in sick days, in doctor's appointments, in school plays, and, you know, like things like that, that allowed them, we know that data tells us when men participate more equally in the home, then we create more equity in the workplace. And so it is about the policy that creates that, but it's also about then the cultural experience of what that actually is for each individual family. Well, uh, certainly we know it here on Under the Radar because we did a whole show on the changing role of fathers and the data is quite Mm -hmm. clear about what the impact is. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley and I'm here with Megan Costello of the Mayor's Office of Women's Empowerment. You just heard her, Rosanna Hertz, Wellesley College professor and author Ricky Gard Diamond. And we're discussing how our economy can start working for women because equal pay day is coming and, and the gap is still there. I want to talk about culturally how ingrained it is that women often don't make that gap close. Here's a clip from an HBO series called Insecure. It's very edgy. And in this clip, the best friend of the main character, Issa's name is Molly Carter. She's a high-powered attorney, and she accidentally gets the check of one of her colleagues and discovers, uh-oh. And then I saw this white paycheck. No, y'all been there the same amount of time. Yeah, but I mean, what am I supposed to do? I can't just roll up to the partners and be like, hey, guys, so I accidentally noticed that you paid this white man more than me. Wait, what? What happened? This is so typical. My aunt found out she made less than some of her white employees. Stop. Spoke up about it. Nothing happened. She still has to work there. Man, f- that. I'm one of the best lawyers they have. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of these work twice as hard, pay me half as much type of b-. Nah. Mm-mm. That's why I make sure my white clients get less on their tax returns. It's reparations. Okay, that's from HBO, the series Insecure. <laughs> and that's uh, obviously a very satirical, dark humor approach to the pay gap uh, for Molly and her friend Issa, but it's it's reflecting a real thing. Now, you mentioned the salary negotiations, which I think are extremely important in terms of letting women advocate for themselves. And I want to talk about the impact of that, if you would. Well, here's the good news. We can close the wage gap. If we have companies look at their data and assess experience, and if you can't explain a gap, then you need to close it. And that's what we are seeing some employers do. Salesforce, for example, they look at their data every single year, and they actually send out checks at the end of the year if they can't find a gap that they can justify. So the dollar and cent gaps are actually the easier ones to fix. What we also need to close is where women are in organizations. And so do you have women on your senior leadership team? Do you have women on your board? Do you have women as middle managers? What's that pipeline look like? And so this is where the salary negotiations are a critical component to this multi-pronged approach. Employers are very serious about this. They understand why they need to be focused in this space. And I think women have been socialized to be fantastic advocates for everybody except themselves. And so these workshops are designed for women to 
take a look at their own career, take a look at their own skills and say, what do I want to get out of it? And how do I articulate that? How do I account for unconscious bias that I might face? And what's the timing of that? And how do I do the research when salaries aren't transparent? How do we have these conversations with our colleagues or use a number of online resources that now exist to find out what is the range we should be asking for? It's really been fantastic to see. 90% of participants that have taken these have taken an immediate action. So Megan, you just discussed the salary negotiation workshops and their long-term impact. But Ricky, your book really is an explanation of how all of this works and has some real ways for women to advocate for themselves. So I, I know that you would agree that this is the best way for women to begin sort of taking back their power in the workforce. Exactly. Take back their power and laugh at what is often absurd. You know, that's why Screwnomics has some cartoons in it because, again, it's about women's lives as it's actually lived. And so often, as we just heard on HBO, it needs laughing at. And it needs that kind of attitude, too. So I'm I'm encouraging what I'm calling uh, econo-girlfriend conversations. Most women, when they get together, are not talking about the macroeconomy and the problems with currency or international trade. A few are, yes, but we need more of them. And we need women who don't think of themselves in those general terms, whose work isn't even focused on the financial to begin to be literate about what's going on in that macroeconomy because that's above all of this and influencing what's happening at the micro level. And we need to feel like uh, we're involved and knowledgeable about all of it. We need to be making decisions at that level. You know, it's not an accident that we've only just had Janet Yellen at the Federal Reserve or Christine Lagarde at the International Monetary Fund I want all women to be conversational about this, and I want women to put their heads together, you know, because when you have a token woman like Janet or or Christine in this powerful position, the game is still one that men invented. You and know, let me the rules to, are theirs. Let me interrupt you, Ricky uh, Guard Diamond, mm-hmm. to say this. Here's a data point that I bet a lot of people didn't know. There is a shortage, you probably know this, Rosanna Hertz, of women economists in the pipeline. So what the projections are at this moment is that we are in a state where there for years to come, most of all of the economic decisions, which, by the way, impact overall public policy, will be made by men. There's no perspective of women. Ricky just mentioned two women who did have impact in those roles, but this is really critical. And this is why we need men engaged in this conversation. This is why we need men to recognize the role that they can and should play in amplifying women's voices and mentoring women and supporting women. You know, McKinsey came out with a study that showed that men think that this problem doesn't exist. And that's a problem. And I think that, you know, for the men listening, for the women listening, women, tell your stories. Don't just talk to each other. Talk to the men in your lives, too, and let them know the challenges that you face in the workplace. And men, ask the questions and be intentional. How can you amplify every single day? There's something you can do every single day in this space. So, Rosanna, what would be, Ricky has spoken very strongly about what women need to do for advocating for themselves and how we need to think overall about these econo-men voices in the workforce and shaping public policy. What's the one thing that could happen, and maybe next year this time at Equal Pay Day, it's looking a little better? Right. I'd like to see Equal Pay Day, let's say, I know today we talk about workshops, but almost a 
consciousness-raising group, not to swap really war stories, but let me tell you about what my salary is. Let me tell you about how hard I work. Let me tell you about what it is I think is not being recognized and what it is I do. And, you know, instead of saying, gee, I really didn't do as much as I could do, or I know that I could have done better. Well, I don't think men sit around saying, gee, I think I could have done better. Men sit around <laughs> saying, I deserve this. Right. And I, I see that even at the undergraduate level. So I think one corrective could be that maybe we could have Pay Equity Day attached to women getting together and talking about these and maybe even talking about it with women who are younger than ourselves so that women begin to become accustomed to thinking about themselves and their contributions to the world of work differently. Well, I think we have to leave it there. I thank you all for joining me in this conversation. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Oh, thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Megan Costello is the executive director of the Mayor's Office of Women's Advancement here in Boston. Rosanna Hertz is the class of 1919 reunion professor of sociology and women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. And Ricky Gard-Diamond is the author of Screwnomics, How Our Economy Works Against Women and Real Ways to Make Lasting Change. Coming up, Every year, millions of happy couples gamble that their I-do's will remain strong when tested by the ordinary stresses of life or some extraordinary trauma. Tyree Jones's latest novel follows the journey of one couple rocked by a situation that threatens the happy future they imagined and planned. An American Marriage is our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Author Jane Austen said, happiness in marriage is entirely a matter of chance. And it's chance which delivers a devastating blow to the young marriage of Roy and Celestial, the main characters in Tayori Jones's latest book, An American Marriage. It's Jones's fourth novel, and it's her first to be named an Oprah's Book Club pick. An American Marriage by Tiari Jones. It is the perfect book to read along with a friend or a family member. You're going to want to have somebody else reading it because it's so juicy. Every chapter you're wondering, will they or won't they? And how's this going to end? You want to talk about it with somebody. I'm telling you, it's one of those books I could not put down. And as soon as I did, I called up the author. An American Marriage is also our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And Tayari Jones joins me now from the studios of National Public Radio in New York City. Welcome to Under the Radar, Tayari, and congrats. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. I am so thrilled to have you, and I love this book, which everybody will know in one second as we begin the conversation. As is our tradition on the Under the Radar Book Club segments, we're not going to spoil the ending or give away many of the twists and turns pertinent to the book. So I want to let people know that uh, some of the basics of the plot, Roy and Celestial are a young couple. They're 18 months married when Roy is falsely accused of a crime and sent to prison. And the rest of the book is the fallout from that on their relationship, on families. And it's an intimate story set against the backdrop of a big story about incarceration. So I thought right off the bat, let's give people a sense of your writing and how you tell the story. Um, and here from, with an excerpt from the book, and this is when Celestial, who is the young wife, recalling the courtroom sentencing. Twelve years is what they gave him. 
We would be 43 years old when he was released. I couldn't even imagine myself at such an age. Roy understood that 12 years was an eternity because he sobbed right there at the defendant's table. His knees gave way and he fell into his chair. The judge paused and demanded that Roy bear this news on his feet. He stood again and cried, not like a baby, but in the way that only a grown man can cry, from the bottom of his feet, up through his torso, and finally through his mouth. When a man wails like that, you know it's all the tears that he was never allowed to shed, from Little League disappointment to teenage heartbreak, all the way up to whatever injured his spirit just last year. As Roy howled, my fingers kept worrying a rough patch of skin beneath my chin, a souvenir of scar tissue. When they did what I remember as kicking in the door, what everyone else remembers as opening it with a plastic key, after the door was opened, however it was opened, we were both pulled from the bed. They dragged Roy into the parking lot, and I followed, lunging for him, wearing nothing but a white slip. Somebody pushed me to the ground, and my chin hit the pavement. My slip rode up, showing everything to everyone as my tooth sank into the soft skin of my bottom lip. Roy was on the asphalt beside me, barely beyond my grasp, speaking words that didn't reach my ears. I don't know how long we lay there, parallel like burial plots. Husband, wife, what God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. That's my guest, Tayari Jones, reading from her best-selling novel, An American Marriage. So, Tayari, this is a love story, but the story has got this backdrop. And I wonder why this story for you? Why, was, why did you want to tell it this way? Okay, about six years ago, seven years ago now, I was a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard, and I was wanting to do research on the issue of incarceration, mass incarceration, you know, something in that family, because I wanted to try and write a novel that addressed an issue of the day. And so, you know, I was there at Radcliffe, and I was researching my little heart out. I read, I read The New Jim Crow like a hundred times. I read oral histories. I watched documentaries. And I learned a lot of facts but, you know, I'm a novelist. I'm not an ethnographer. I'm not a sociologist. And I was really kind of stymied because I didn't know how to turn research into art, like the fairy tale where she can spin straw into gold. I didn't have a magic spinning wheel. And so I went to Atlanta. And when I was there in Atlanta, I overheard a young couple arguing in the mall. I heard the woman say, clear as day. She said, Roy, you know you wouldn't have waited on me for seven years. And he said back, I don't know what you're talking about. This wouldn't have happened to you in the first place. This was clearly a lover's quarrel. So many of us have lover's quarrels, but I think they were talking about the question of incarceration. It sounded like it, and boy, did you take that and run with it in this book. I want to emphasize the intimacy of the story because you can get caught up thinking, wow, incarceration, that's a big topic, and you've explained how you've come to it. But it really is about these people, their lives, and how it impacts so the world around them. I mean, it was really important to me. I remember when I was studying to be a writer, my mentor said to me, he said, don't write about problems and their people. You have to write about people 
and their problems. And the intimacy is what makes it a novel as opposed to a tract or a speech. It's really about this young couple, newlyweds, when the husband is incarcerated for a crime he did not commit. Well, my own book club, my personal book club, I just want you to know, it stirred one of the most emotional conversations. We're yelling. The facilitator had to calm us down two or three times. <laughs> it got like that because people were so into each of these characters, none of which, by the way, are all good or all bad. They all are very flawed in a way that we all are. And that was masterful. And what I want to tell you is that what I noted from all of us in that conversation and what others have noted is you are really a master at describing a relationship or deconstructing a relationship. You really get down in there with those characters and it's how they interact with each other. How do you begin to process the interaction of the characters? Because people can write good characters, but when you can really make that relationship lift up off the page, that's really quite something. You know, I have a friend who's a photographer, and he told me that whenever you have a picture with two people in the picture, the picture becomes a story of those two people. And I try to think of every scene like that, like every scene is really about what do these characters want from each other? What are they saying they want and what do they really want? And how are these things at war? And it was such a thing, particularly with the marriage, you know, Roy and Celestial, they symbolize things to one another. Roy is a first-generation college student. He has married this woman from this kind of fancy Atlanta family. She represents how far he's come in life. And he kind of interacts with her as an individual, but also as a symbolic creature. And I always kept that in mind in their scenes together. And just like Celestial and Andre... Andre has known Celestial since they were two little babies bathing together in the sink. So she represents to him home, roots, a connection to a time in his life when he was happy. And so he also interacts with her as Celestial the person, but also as Celestial the idea. Well, we haven't told our listeners that Andre is the third person in a romantic triangle. Um, you've just described uh, how Celestial knows him and, and has cared for him. And that's part of the tension of the book, too. So you have Roy, who's gone away to prison, presumably for most of his adult life, never, maybe never even to get out. And then you have Celestial on the outside. And here is her dear, dear friend who really confesses in this book that he's always loved her. I wonder if you would read the section from Andre. And we should mention that you wrote the book in alternating chapters. So Roy has a perspective, Andre has a perspective, and Celestial has a perspective. And what I'm asking you to read is Andre talking about loving Celestial while Roy is in jail. And this is from his perspective. This is what it must be like to be married to a widow. You give her bandages for her wounds. You offer comfort when memories sneak up and she cries for what looks like no reason. When she reminisces about the past, you don't remind her of the things she has chosen not to recollect, all the while telling yourself that it's unreasonable to be jealous of a dead man. But what can I do other than what I've done? I've known Celestial Davenport all my life, and I've loved her for at least that long. This is the truth as natural and unvarnished as old hickey, the centuries-old tree that grows between our two houses. My affection for her is etched onto my body like the Milky Way birthmark scoring my shoulder blades. On the day we got the news, I was aware that she didn't belong to me. I don't mean that on paper at least she was another man's wife. 
If you knew her, you would know that she never belonged to him either. I'm not sure she even realized it herself, but she's the kind of woman who will never belong to anyone. This is a truth you have to lean close to see. Picture a $20 bill. You think it's green, but when you get up close, you find that it's beige linen with dark green ink. Now consider Celestial. Even while she wore his ring, she wasn't his wife. She was merely a married woman. I'm not making excuses for myself. I know there are men in this world, better men than me, who would cut these feelings off and burn the stump the day that Roy went to prison, especially with him being falsely convicted. His innocence is something that I have never doubted. None of us did. Mr. Davenport is disappointing in me, believing that I should have been a gentleman and left Celestial alone, leaving her to be a living monument to Roy's struggle. But anyone who can't understand doesn't know what it means to have loved someone since you first figured out how to bend your tongue to talk, how to flex your feet to make steps. That's my guest, Ayari Jones. She's the author of An American Marriage. It's her fourth novel. She also wrote Leaving Atlanta, The Untelling, Silver Sparrow. You're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And An American Marriage is our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. So, Tayari, the big shadow, of course, is Roy is in prison, and you did all the research about incarceration. The couple is a young black couple. Race plays a part of this in the book, but it's interesting because there are so many critical parts of this book and where we discovered in my book club where we're yelling at each other, we don't know the race (laughs) of the individual, including the real critical part where the woman who falsely accuses Roy is really not identified racially. And so we wanted to know... Is she white or is she black? Because we both had reasons to think one way or the other. Well, I would also argue that there are a number of people in America who are not white or black, just (laughs) for the record. (laughs) For the record, it's a very diverse country. There's a reason why I did not identify the race of the woman who accused him. This idea, like, were she to be white, I'm not going to weigh in on this for you, but I feel like were she to be black, were she to be white, then the focus of the story becomes relitigating, in many ways, kind of relitigating Emmett Till, relitigating the crimes of the past in such a way that the question of this relationship would become lost, I feared. It's almost like I think our minds like to go back to an argument we've already had or a discussion we've already had. And I was trying to complicate our understanding of this young couple torn apart by incarceration and keep the eye on them. That is why I didn't lean on that. But I think there are clues enough that you could probably figure it out. Well, not in my book club. <laughs> we we went back and forth. We read it out loud. We Anyway, I just want you to know that you got a lot of conversation going at the top of our lungs. You know, I had no idea when I was writing it that this would be such a sticking point. Because, you know, it's a very brief moment in the beginning. I I'm really interested in the consequences of that day. But one thing I will say that it was very important to me that Roy has been misidentified as her assailant, which is different than an all-out lie. Mm. Eyewitness testimony is simultaneously the most convincing and the least reliable. Like a shady lineup can make you believe that you know who the person is. You can be manipulated by the lineup and believe in your heart that you are properly identifying the person. And this is the real challenge with this. Even Roy says, someone attacked her. Mm. It just wasn't me. Now, here's the other thing. Again, prison becomes a backdrop as Roy and Celestial 
try to work out all kinds of things through letters and their conversation with each other in brief moments of visitation over years. And you don't spend a lot of time with the detail of what Roy is facing in prison. And I'm reminding of this because another Oprah book pick uh, for her Sunday specials is uh, Shankar Sengar's Writing My Wrongs, uh, Life in a Prison. And he talks about some brutal honesty about what happens in prisons and how he dealt with it. He's on the other side now writing about it, talking about it, doing some advocacy for folks in prison. But we don't really get a lot of that. And I assume that was a deliberate choice as well. Absolutely. I mean, I chose to use the letters so that we only know of prison what Roy chooses to share with his wife. And I did this for a couple of reasons. One being that, like you described the other book with the brutal details, when you are a reader, you experience vicariously what the characters experience. Prison is brutal. Prison is harrowing. And that was not an experience I, as a writer, wanted to have vicariously. And it's not an experience that I wanted you, as a reader, to have vicariously. So what I tried to do was to get the small details that give you the emotional weight of his experience without necessarily the blow-by-blow of prison. And one way that I was able to accomplish this, or at least I hope that I was, is I read an oral history of a man who was wrongfully convicted, and he spoke a lot about the desire for fresh fruit. And I mean, he couldn't let that go. He kept coming back to it. And it moved me so because it was just such a symbol of deprivation, no freshness, nothing new, and how the man in the oral history was saying some fairly elaborate lengths that he went through to get fresh fruit. And I gave that to Roy. And for that to be kind of like the thing he did that he's most ashamed of involved the pursuit of a pair. And I felt like that gave you the real emotional weight Mm. of what has happened to him without having to walk through the brutality. Well, the book is really emotional. And I thought about it afterwards and I thought, you know, you're really playing with all the stuff that, you know, makes our human interactions daily so fraught. Forgiveness, love, loyalty. This is big stuff um, played out among these two people. And it really hits you, even though you may have lives totally different from theirs. I know that that was your point. But why did you want to tell this exact story about forgiveness and love and loyalty and overarching? This is all a part of love, a love story. Well, you know, I felt like this story for me, I actually started writing it all about the wife, Celestial. That was my original impulse, to write about a woman whose husband is wrongfully incarcerated and really ask myself, where does, about loyalty, self-sacrificing, and how how does one look at that through really a feminist lens? This is how I started it off. And I had written it all from her point of view, but I have to say that it didn't feel like the whole story. And I think this is what makes it intersectional, that I felt that Roy's suffering was so immense that it I had to share it. I could not talk about her decisions without talking about his reality. And I feel like it was a way for me to really ask myself some really important questions about the relationship between men and women, particularly black men and black women. Like, how does feminism work when the man is in such peril? Does that mean that feminism is a luxury, or not even feminism, but self-actualization is a luxury that black women cannot afford? Like, I wasn't satisfied with that. But how does a woman both support this man who 
who is in such a terrible situation by no fault of his own, as Celestial's father says, he is a hostage of the state. But what about her dreams of being an artist? What about her having her moment? Can you do both? That was really my question. And I wondered, Terry, if you were making a statement about marriage, period. I mean, the book is called An American Marriage. But I note that there are other marriages in the book to examine. We have Roy's parents. uh, We have Celestial's parents. We have Uncle Banks and his longtime companion. So that's a lot of fodder to think about how relationships can work. Now, of course, they were not faced with the situation that Roy and Celestial had. But yet, there was a lot going on in their individual marriages that could potentially have upended it. So was this a bigger comment on marriage I would argue that we all face the challenges that Roy and Celestial do. It's just that Roy and Celestial's challenges are like cranked up to 20, and most people's are around cranked to like eight. Because the question really is, how does one balance one's identity as part of a couple and the shared needs, goals, desires with one's individual same thing, needs, goals, and desires. Um, I was at a book signing recently, and a woman said, I could identify with this because me and my husband are in a long-distance relationship. She says prison is the ultimate long-distance relationship. Mm. And I hadn't really thought of it like that, but their challenges are the same. But I think that what I learned about writing about so many marriages is that marriages work when the people are on the same page. It's about compatibility, not that there is a certain right or wrong way to do it. Like if you look at Roy's parents, people always say their relationship is very strong. But I just think if you look at those two people, all they do is each other. They don't even have any friends. They just <laughs> have made their whole world each other and, the, and their son. And that only works because they agree. That's like, a good I would be miserable in that relation. Everyone kind of idealizes it, but I look at their relationship and I think, oh, my God, what a nightmare. Because I'm not like that. And if you look at Celestial's parents, their relationship works because her father is what I like to call a benevolent patriarch. You know, he is definitely the head of household, but he's nice about it. And his wife doesn't really have strong ambitions toward a completely equal relationship. Mm -hmm. So that works for them. Celestial and Roy were working when they both liked the idea that she was independent, a free spirit, an artist. But once he was incarcerated, I like to say when the going gets tough, people get really conservative. And that's when they stopped agreeing about their life. Well, the other thing that you tackle in this book, I, that's, that's food for thought you've just given me there about those marriages, is the class. Because it should be noted that Roy and Celestial are upwardly mobile young couple. And so it's interesting because it seems to say, your book seems to say, you can be that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you won't be faced with some trauma like this. And if so, what are you going to do? This was a deliberate choice about who they were in their economic status, right? Well, I'm really, you know, I read, I think, in the Atlantic that most people in America don't know people from a different class background than their own. But I think this is totally different for black Americans. When we think about people with different class backgrounds than our own, we call those cousins, right? Like (laughs) our 
there's so much class mobility in the African-American community. Like anybody that, if you go to a college, there are going to be a number of black people who are first-generation college students, and they're being friends with people who may be, say, second- or third-generation college students. And so this question of making family across class line, I think in black communities, is a fairly common one. And it's something that I don't think is talked about very much, but it definitely impacts the way that Celestial and Roy interact and their ideas about marriage and their relationship. And questions of masculinity and femininity also are tied in with class. Part of Roy's fascination with Celestial and her allure, and I would even argue her femininity to him, is that she is from this upper-middle-class background. Well, it's a fascinating tale told really well. I mean, I love some of the comments that you've gotten. Satisfying romantic drama, spare and shimmering prose. That's one of my favorites. And the Google people wrote that you're blessed with a vision to see through to the surprising and devastating truths at the heart of ordinary lives, strength to wrest those truths free, and a gift of language to lay it all out, compelling and clear. I couldn't agree more. A couple last questions. What's it been like out there on the road, having been anointed by Oprah? <laughs> and <laughs> Well, the whole thing has been so, it's been beyond my wildest dreams. And I'm a fairly wild dreamer, I'll have you know. But, you know, just imagine in October, I'm driving my car and the phone rings and a voice on the other end says, hi, this is Oprah. <laughs> and with that, my life really changed. I feel very lucky, but also it's a responsibility. I mean, Oprah Winfrey has lent her good name to my work and to my project. And that does give me a sense of responsibility to further her mission, which is to bring people together through reading, you know, the same book. But also I try to go out of my way and visit places where book tours may not normally go to put the book out there and bring up a conversation. But all in all, it has been super, I can't say how exciting it is. And, you know, I'm 47. I thought I was kind of past excitement, but I'm I'm excited <laughs> like I'm five years old. I love it. Last question. What's the one thing you want people to take away from the book? This is six years of hard work from you, and it paid off, I think, in this book. I'd love to know what you'd like us to take away. I really hope that people walk away with a renewed sense of empathy, not just for people who are incarcerated, but for one another. I think that's what Roy's journey really was. You know, Roy thinks that because he's been imprisoned, that he has lost everything. He thinks he's lost his job. He fears that he's lost his wife, his house. He fears that all his power is gone. And so he thinks he's on a quest to find, to regain his power. But I think that what he comes to understand that the quest to regain your citizenship is a quest to regain your empathy, because that is how we are citizens of our relationships, our families, our communities, is by asking ourselves, what is it that we can do to understand other people? Thank you so much for joining me, Tyree. Thank you, Callie. This was a lot of fun, and thanks for choosing it for your book club. Oh, they'll love it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Tyree Jones is the author of An American Marriage. It's an Oprah's book club pick and our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. 
Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Swahe is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.